Hi everybody, it's Rabbi Hannah. So how many of you know, there's a new Jewish museum in the works and it's set to open in 2022, though there's already a website for it. It's called the Capital Jewish Museum. It's going to document stories of Jewish life in the Capitol. Here with the inside scoop is one of our own Hilhavaran members, Rebecca Sobel. She probably has the coolest job title I have ever heard of. She is Director of Interpretation for the new museum. And so she joined me to talk about her work there and at the Holocaust Memorial Museum where she worked for 10 years. We Zoomed together and here's our conversation. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here on the Hilhavar podcast. I have so many questions for you, uh, but the first one I should ask is just, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, the basics. Sure. Um, so I'm originally from Los Angeles. I moved to the East Coast to go to grad school um, to be an anthropologist. And I always wanted to really be involved in museum work and try to understand how people tell stories with objects when there's no person to tell the story. Hmm. That is so cool. And you've been working specifically in Jewish museums pretty consistently through your career. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And that, like, I, I didn't set out to do that. It just sort of happened. Um, when I was in grad school, my um, one of my professors um, knew the director of the then National Museum of American Jewish History, which in Philadelphia, which is this tiny little um, exhibit space attached to this very old Sephardic synagogue um, right in downtown Philadelphia in the old, old city. And uh, he just said, he's like, go talk to Margot and you need to have an internship if you really want to work in a museum. You need to see what it's like. And that, that was the total start. And hmm. I moved here for a job at the B'nai B'rith Kletznik National Jewish Museum, which now doesn't even exist anymore. Um, it just kind of panned out this way. So, all right, before we get into your current work at the Capitol Jewish Museum, which I definitely yeah. have the most questions about, okay. um, yeah, tell us about what you're coming from most immediately at the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, so I spent 10 years at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, working with audiences of various programs and not so much exhibitions. At, at the end of the 10 year period, we, we finally started a, um, an audience research project. But most of my work was um, working with teachers who came from all over the country to try to learn about how to teach the Holocaust. And so I was working with staff to develop evaluation tools so that we would know how the teachers felt about what they learned. And then six months later, we would get back in touch with them and say, hey, have you used the materials that we sent you home with? How are you feeling about your comfort level about teaching about the Holocaust in your classroom? Mm. Um, because that was data that, that nobody had. There wasn't any way to understand the impact of Holocaust education. There were programs in Phoenix, Texas, Chicago suburbs, places where the state had said that Holocaust education is um, recommended. So not every state in the United States recommends or requires Holocaust education, if you believe that. Mm. Um, wow. And there was recently um, some legislation, like in the past month, to try to remedy that. I didn't even hear about that. Yeah. There's been a number of studies recently about how little millennials know about the Holocaust. And there's been an uptick in anti-Semitism um, and Holocaust denial and not understanding what's been going, what, what had happened in Europe or what's been going on historically. So there are some people that are trying to mandate specific Holocaust education in every state. 
Do you feel like a lot of the teachers who came to you were teaching in situations where they were sort of preaching to the choir um, and where their students' families like, added, you know, deep understandings or no, you're shaking your head, no. Say, no, say most of the teachers that came were granted vacation days and substitute teachers to come and learn about something that they perhaps didn't have much knowledge of themselves. Uh, most of the it's teachers okay, that came were- vacation days to come. They weren't mm -hmm. like on professional development or anything like that. The, uh, the school districts um, and the donors to the program provided money for substitute teachers for the teachers to come. Mm, okay. Um, and most of the people that came were white women from suburban communities or rural communities, not too many inner city people that I am aware of. Um, and this program or these programs, both at the museum and in the communities um, have have been going on, you know, since the museum opened in 93. Wow. So the work that you're doing now, I imagine it's similar in many ways and very different in others. And one of the biggest differences that I imagine is that you're really helping to build a museum right now, the Capitol Jewish Museum. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Sure. So in 1876, the first purpose-built synagogue was dedicated here in Washington, D.C., downtown at the corner of 5th and G. And it was the Addis Israel community. And um, this little building, even though the Addis Israel community moved to 6th and I uh, in the early 1900s, and then in the 1950s moved to Connecticut Avenue, this little building continues to survive. And so we are building a museum, a Jewish museum for the Capitol, which surprisingly hasn't, hasn't had a Jewish museum really um, the Jewish Historical Society of Greater Washington used to be our collection. So we've kind of taken over that archive. But this little building has moved three times um, as a result of gentrification of the city. So the first time it moved was because Metro headquarters was going in at 5th and G and they bought the entire block and some folks got together and petitioned Richard Nixon to sign a form that said, we need to save this building. It needs to be on the list of historic places and we need to find a place to move it. So they put it on wheels and they moved it three blocks um, to 3rd and G. And then they started building over uh, 395, this project called Capital Crossing. And so the building had to move another block north towards Mass Avenue to be out of the way. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think Rabbi Hannah, you were actually there last year. I was January. there. I gave uh, the tra yeah. traveler's blessing. Yeah, it was awesome. We were on NPR. It was really fantastic. And Rabbi Hannah gave the traveler's blessing and we moved the, this little building for the last time. What buildings moved three times? I've never given a traveler's blessing for a building before and I had never <laughs> seen a building move before. It was crazy. It was like rolling down the street and yeah. we all had to like get out of the way because a building was rolling down the street. It was so weird. Um, we have a great time-lapse video on our website so you can watch it in 30 seconds. Move down the street, make the turn and onto the plot where the it now sits at the corner of 3rd and F Northwest, and we're going to break ground on a brand new museum building that will very carefully attach to the historic building only at the roof line, and we hope to be open in 2022. I, I love receiving the emails that I get from the Capitol Jewish Museum because you're always looking for something cool or you've got something cool going on. Do you want to talk about some of the asks that you're making of the community right now? Sure. So we actually have three separate asks that seem to overlap a lot, depending on what people 
actually come up with. And, but on our website, we have um, three different links. One of them is called History from Home. So because people are home, we're asking them to go into their attics and find things that represent to them what it means to be a Jewish Washingtonian. It's kind of broad. Um, we have some other specific things that we might be asking for on our website. Some of them are, what's the intersection of your Jewish identity and your work identity? Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. is unique in the sense that it's uh, government that makes us our company town. You know, there isn't a big factory or manufacturing mm -hmm. around here. Um, it's really a, a major service economy. And so we're asking people that have worked for federal service in any way to, to help us understand what that was like um, being Jewish, because there's, there's lots of mixed stories there. Right. Um, we're also asking for people to share with us what it's been like to be Jewish in a place where this is a very American cultural place where there's lots of flags everywhere. And how, mm -hmm. how, does, that, how does that make you feel about being outwardly Jewish? What, what does that look like to you? Interesting. Um, Wait, that's just one? Yeah. That, I thought that was one. the three. No, that's just one. History oh my God. Wait, <laughs> okay. I want you to keep going, but I have a, okay. I like a sort of follow-up question. Okay. Okay, if, if you're someone who's sitting at home, like, you know, getting ready to go through the attic or the closet and looking for, like, what are some of the sorts of things people could bring in? I mean, I'm sure you want people to be very creative, but other than photos. Oh, okay. So we've, um, we've had people approach us with, Judaica that has American flags on it. Um, mm. um, we've had people um, talk to us about their Passover stuff that has like going to an interfaith Seder or using their own Passover stuff to bring to someone else's house, you know, talking about community in Washington. And we've had people give us um, or offer us um, their press passes because there's so many journalists that live here. Mm. And so those are really fun symbols of events and work and also Jewish identity because some of the events that Jewish journalists are asked to go to have to do with Israel. That's interesting. interesting. Okay, so that was just one thing you're looking for. Yeah. Artifacts from people's homes, yeah. talking about like that, that sort of dem demonstrate what it's like to be Jewish in DC, what it's like to be Jewish at work in DC, yeah. and what it's like to be Jewish in such like an, a USA focused city okay that's just one thing what are yeah, the other that's just one um so because of this coronavirus situation that we're in right now we are asking people to send us digital artifacts of how their life has changed in jewish experience during covid so we're getting photographs of mm -hmm. empty cemeteries we're getting photographs of zoom passover seders like we had for hill Havarah and yeah. shivas and Get, we're getting pictures of virtual camp um, gatherings and Havdalah on Zoom. Yeah. Um, and then third, we're also um, asking people to share their experiences in this moment of um, trying to understand racial justice. So we're getting photographs, we're getting videos, we're getting audio files, we're getting, we were able to acquire a talit that a guy wore down at Lafayette Square back in June. And he was singing Shalom Rav to um, the National Guard troops. Yeah. Um, so it's a really interesting time. And the last thing I'll just add is that it's, it's helped us think about the tone and the voices of our core exhibition that we're building right now. We want to make sure that there aren't just Jewish voices. Yeah. 
Is there um, an exhibit information right now that you are like especially, especially excited about that you could talk about? So we have so many stories in development, um, but one of the stories that I'm really excited to flesh out, actually there's two, can I share two? Please. Okay, so one that's really intriguing to me is what it was like to live here in Washington, D.C. In spring of 1916, I believe, for the Lewis Brandeis confirmation hearings to the Supreme Court. Those mm -hmm. hearings took six months, longer than Brett Kavanaugh. It's the longest running time for a Supreme Court justice to be considered. And um, he was the first Jewish Supreme Court justice appointed by Woodrow Wilson. So having this story about what it was like for the first Jewish Supreme Court justice to be um, put on the Supreme Court and what the discussion was left, right, inside, outside, uh, is super fascinating to me. Yeah. The other story I'm really excited to tell, it's, a long, it's kind of a long and complicated one, but the short of it is that Howard University, being one of the um, historically Black colleges and universities um, to accept um, not, not only Jewish, but many Jewish refugees from, from Europe in the, 19, in the late 1930s and early 1940s, Howard was the university that accepted the most refugees um, and gave yeah, them visas Howard? to come to the city to teach. Cool. And so we want to share some stories of some of those teachers and some of the students that were influenced by those teachers from Howard. That sounds like an amazing exhibit. Wow, I am so excited for this museum. Thanks. Very cool. So while Rebecca collects stories for this new museum, she's also home with her rising fourth grade son, Ethan, and her younger daughter, Maya. And they've been at home, of course, trying to stay not bored. And so Ethan came over to the computer to tell me what he's been dreaming up. Ethan, hi. Hi. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for being on the Hill Hover Oddcast. Uh, I just wanted to touch base with you to hear how you've been doing. Like, what have you been up to? Mostly camp. Camp, what's camp I don't like right camp, now? though. It's online. It's the hardest thing that I've done that they've told us to do is a collage. Got it. So you're, it you're looking for art projects that are going to feel really challenging. Yeah. Like, what's your dream art project? My dream art project is to make a functioning golf cart thingy mob. You want to engineer? Yeah, I want to engineer golf carts. That would be really hard to teach over the internet. I already know how to do it. I'm going to get a lawnmower engine. I'm going to connect it to a chain, and then I'm going to spin the um, axle, which is connected to the wheels. How did you learn how to do that? Because I saw a video online about somebody who made a bow into an amphibious vehicle. That's incredible. Um, it is so good to see you. Say hi to the rest of your family for me. Um, Rebecca, Ethan, thank you so much for being on the Hillcomber Podcast. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having us, Rabbi Hannah. This is a, this is a great thing for Hillhaver Off. So don't forget, if you have items or know people who have stories about Jewish life in Washington, let Rebecca know. And sign up for updates to get call-outs and find out about the progress of the new museum. So right now, in the Jewish calendar, we're almost a week into the three-week buildup before Tisha B'Av. And Tisha B'Av is the saddest day in the Jewish calendar. 
This year, it starts on the evening of Wednesday, July 29th, and it moves through the day of Thursday the 30th. It's a time when we remember so many of the hard things that our people has been through. Probably the destruction of the first and second temples are the first thing we think about when we think of Tisha B'Av, but uh, it's also said that Kristallnacht and other really horrible modern events happened on Tisha B'Av. The day the Jews were kicked out of Spain in 1492 is said to have happened on Tisha B'Av. And also it's said that the day the Israelites who left Egypt as slaves, escaped slaves, learned that they would not be able to enter the promised land happened on Tisha B'Av. So there are many traditional ways to observe this time. Many people during the three week buildup don't listen to music or play it. It's traditional not to get married during these three weeks. During the nine days before Tisha B'Av, it's traditional not to eat meat or drink wine or even do laundry. And then on Tisha B'Av itself, it's a fast day, so like Yom Kippur, fasting from you know, food or drink during those 24, 25 hours. And I'd like to suggest also an alternative practice, maybe not as a substitute for these traditional elements, potentially as an enhancement. And it is for us to give ourselves the space to take in the media that we've been avoiding. Uh, what I mean by that is, I don't know if you're like me and you tend to avoid reading COVID statistics, um, or if you refuse to watch disturbing videos in the news, or if you pretty much never watch films about the Holocaust, or anything like that. I don't wanna get too sad, so I really, tend to not take in any of that. But those, uh, those pieces of information, of knowledge and of art exist for a reason. And maybe during these three weeks, it's a really good time to lean into them and allow ourselves to take them in. And then to just be sad. And when you're actually feeling that sad, not doing laundry and not pretending to enjoy a nice meal, those can be acts of self-care. And so the practices of Tisha B'Av can feel nurturing in a way. So it's important not to let these things take over our lives, but that doesn't mean we can't let them take over a day-long, nine-day-long, three-week-long period. There's a time and a place for them. So I hope everyone has a meaningful Tisha B'Av and a meaningful time leading up, and we will talk next week. I, 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 I am not afraid I, 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 am not afraid. I, 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 am not afraid. I am not afraid, but all the earth it reels. I am not afraid, but mountains fall into the sea. Listen to them sing about a river. Where you live and we rejoice No, I am not afraid It's not a feeling, it's a choice El anu ma'chaseh ba'or